0: Dr. Amalia Ganias-Malka, welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socio-economic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Johannesburg is Professor Fiona Tregena, who holds the DST-NRF South African Research Chair in Industrial Development. She is also a professor of economics at the University of Johannesburg. She is involved in economic policy issues in South Africa as well as internationally and sits on several boards, advisory panels and council. President Cyril Ramaphosa appointed her to his Presidential Economic Advisory Council and she also serves on the Scientific Community of the African Programme on Rethinking Development Economics, where she also lectures. Welcome to the show. Morning and thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be part of the show. Prof. Garnett, you have made so many achievements within the economic space and not just from a point of view of of teaching students and helping advance their knowledge, but also in, in real practical terms. So to begin with, almost tracking back to when you first started out on your career, you attained your Ph.D. in economics from the University of Cambridge in the U.K., You received your master's degree in economics from the University of Massachusetts in the USA and attained earlier degrees from the universities of Rand and Natal in South Africa. Having obtained your academic qualifications from different countries obviously allowed you to experience those societies and economies of your host nations. Can you tell us what prompted you to
1: pursue an economic career? I guess uh, what really interested me in economics stemmed from my kind of social justice commitment to start with. I think when I was uh, younger, starting from my my teens, um, I was very politically active. This was in the kind of late apartheid period, uh, moving towards democracy. Although I actually uh, started off studying science at university, but I was much more interested um, in politics and in economics. Economics kind of became clear to me as um, an area in which a lot gets decided and people's lives get fundamentally affected. If things are wrong in the economy, not much can be uh, right anywhere else. That might sound a bit simplistic, but I really do think that the economic domain is, is, is quite a fundamental one. Um, so I guess I was drawn into economics kind of through politics. And at first, when I started studying economics, I really didn't enjoy it. I wouldn't have imagined that I would have continued many more years of study up to the PhD level and uh, remained in that uh, area. Because, yeah, I think undergraduate economics is quite boring, um, very divorced from the real world. But it got more interesting as as uh, I went along. For me, my, my interest in economics is quite applied. It's very important for me to kind of think through how my own economic work has some sort of relevance and hopefully even in some way some sort of impact on what I would call the real world.
0: If we don't have the economy right, I don't think much else can go right. And if we look at how our markets are globally connected, everything is interrelated. There's impact and implications on on
1: all sorts of variables. No, absolutely. I think economics is is connected to virtually all other domains. If we think about health, um, education, um, the household, the green transition, whatever, um, has an economic uh, dimension. And it's not necessarily to elevate that economic dimension, but there's interrelationships between the economic and, and everything else, culture, politics and so on. And I understand that
0: your primary areas of research concern structural change, de and industrial development. Can you tell us a little bit more about de as a as a concept and theme? Because I think most of us are very familiar with creating industries, but not so
1: much with regards to deindustrialization. This kind of comes from a broad approach within development economics, which suggests that A key part of uh, economic development and a key thing for developing countries to kind of catch up with advanced economies is what we call structural change. So kind of moving towards higher productivity activities and a key part of that being industrialization. So the growth of the of the manufacturing sector and moving within manufacturing towards higher productivity activities but the reality in many parts of the world uh, is actually one of deindustrialization when deindustrialization initially started probably about half a century ago this was happening largely in advanced economies of the world such as the UK the US and so on but now it's a very widespread uh, phenomenon around the world so we see the shrinking of the manufacturing sector relative to other parts of the economy and whereas previously countries would have gone through a a period of industrialization and building up their manufacturing sector before perhaps transitioning into services. We now observe a phenomenon of deindustrialization kicking in earlier and earlier. So, what we sometimes call premature deindustrialization. So, where a country hasn't even industrialized a lot, but they already start uh, deindustrializing. For example, when we look at uh, African countries, The experience is is quite diverse across the continent, but at least in some of the low income African countries, we see deindustrialization already kicking in when the countries have have barely even uh, industrialized in any meaningful sense. So I've called this phenomenon pre-industrial deindustrialization because there's not even a real built up uh, manufacturing sector that can kind of uh, drive growth and development in those countries. And it's already that nascent industrial sector is in some countries already starting to, to shrink. And from my perspective, part of the problem with that is that it becomes difficult for those economies to find kind of alternative development paths that are feasible and can sustain high growth over time. Because where a country has already industrialized and kind of captured some of those benefits of industrialization and so on, even if they're moving into services economies or services activities, uh, it's more feasible to develop sort of um, uh, high-tech, export-oriented, dynamic uh, services activities. But where a country has barely even industrialized, the kinds of services activities which it's likely to, to shift into are more kind of uh, low skill, low productivity activities, informal retail and, and so on. It would be very difficult for a country that hasn't industrialized at all or in any meaningful sense to kind of jump into, you know, high tech, really dynamic services, which could serve as an alternative engine of growth. You've done a lot of work with, within the continent. If we
0: say from a, an African country perspective, there are industrial hubs such as industrial zones or parks. And that is one strategy towards industrialization and growth. How do you think that these can be made to be more developmental and also to contribute to women's empowerment?
1: I think that's a really important question from a, a policy perspective. Because a number of African countries are using this as as one of their policy instruments. And I think it's particularly attractive for countries that don't have a strong manufacturing sector that's already kind of got a momentum of its own. So the idea is to put into place like an industrial park or a district or a zone, often something very export oriented, and to try and attract uh, investment in manufacturing uh, firms there. This is a strategy that does have some potential, particularly, as I said, in cases where there's not really a, a strong and vibrant sector already, and you can kind of concentrate it in one place with particular support, with particular objectives in mind, and so on. I think in order for to leverage broader industrialization and, and growth and development, these kind of industrial zones have to be seen as part of a broader industrial policy and, and a broader growth policy. So if it's just kind of doing more of the same. Uh, creating a few manufacturing jobs, creating a bit of foreign exchange and so on. Well, yes, it does serve a purpose. And of course, it's better than nothing. But what countries really need to look towards is a more dynamic approach that uses this to kind of catalyze industrialization, structural change and growth more broadly. So in that respect, kind of to concretize it, I think what's really important is the linkages between the activities in these sort of zones And what happens in the rest of a a domestic economy so that they don't just become kind of enclaves um, of industrialization which are really isolated from the rest of the economy so it's important to have supply chain linkages for example where firms in these uh, zones can can source inputs uh, from the rest of the economy skills linkages technological linkages and so on and then in terms of the second part of your question around uh, the, the gender aspects of this I think when we look at industrial zones and and their history around the world, the record has has been quite mixed, if we are honest, in terms of uh, gender and uh, women's empowerment. In many cases, these zones have focused on kind of uh, low cost uh, production, sort of a race to the bottom, where it becomes a competition between countries and between firms who can offer production at the, the lowest wages. And there's been experiences in many countries of women being paid very low wages, very poor working conditions, a lot of documentation of uh, sexual harassment, exploitation and so on in in these sort of zones. But it doesn't have to be like that. So I think it comes back to what I was saying earlier about how to use them more deliberately as a development tool to know what is it that you want out of these zones. The race to the bottom, I think, is just not feasible either economically, or from a broader socio-economic uh, development perspective. So it's important to have a, an approach to, to these, which says, how can we use decent work uh, for women um, and for men as well, uh, obviously in those, uh, in those zones? How can we use them as part of not only an industrialization strategy, but a, a women empowerment strategy um, to integrate women into industries, perhaps where they've been underrepresented in the past, this also suggests that the kind of industries you want to attract there are not necessarily just the ones which uh, rely on uh, lowest cost production and make low wages their kind of selling point. I don't think that's a, a feasible or desirable way to go. It's not sustainable I mean, because you're going to keep chasing a, a never ending cycle of, of racing, as you said, to the bottom. Exactly. So we need to look at. How can we not only rely on our current, what we call a static comparative advantage, but from a, a kind of a dynamic uh, comparative advantage perspective, where would we like to build up our strengths um, as a country and what sort of industries we might not be leaders in at the moment, but we can build up uh, capabilities uh, in those So we've spoken
0: about the opportunity of creating industries, we've spoken about setting up industrial hubs as one example, but we also need to be able to look towards markets where we can sell our our wares and, and obviously generate returns. The African Continental Free Trade Agreement is a flagship project coming out of the African Union's Agenda 2063. And it it speaks to the fact of being able to integrate Africa and enhance its industrialization projects and help us have components which are more equal and fair. And the idea is to create a basis of a single African market, which comprises of our 54 nations and 1.2 billion people. What are your perspectives of this as an economic venture? And again, how do you think it can benefit women on the continent?
1: Mm, Yes, indeed, it is a a crucial plank in a new uh, growth and development strategy for the continent. I think that one of the constraints which the continent has faced in terms of economic growth has been that the small size of many countries, which, of course, uh, derives from the colonial history and just uh, arbitrary borders being put into place, has meant that the domestic market of many countries has been too small to really uh, scaffold industrialization and and economic uh, growth uh, more broadly. So part of the idea behind this kind of uh, regional and continental integration is to say Africa as a whole has a huge market, Can we have that kind of integration amongst countries economically so that combined, there's a larger market which can provide a base for for firms, for sectors, um, for industries to actually be able to build up their capabilities within that broader market. Sell not just uh, within their small country, um, but within the region and the continent um, as a whole. And of course, to look beyond that as well. But to be able to build up your expertise, your skills, your knowledge, your technology, and so on, with what we call um, economies of scale. So, a domestic market uh, might be too small to do that, but a regional or continental market can be big enough. I think it's also important to recognise that outcomes won't necessarily be be positive across the board, or won't be. E- even across all countries. And that will largely be the the outcome of policy choices as well as to some extent of of prior conditions. So we also need to guard against some of the smaller or or weaker economies becoming more swamped by this. For example, a a country which is is still trying to to develop its own manufacturing sector, if it just gets flooded by by goods from uh, South Africa or or Mauritius or other countries, which have already got a bit more developed uh, manufacturing sector, it would become uh, more difficult for for that kind of country to to industrialise and develop. So I think it's important that this kind of regional integration is also combined with industrial policy measures, technology support and so on um, in in firms and in countries to ensure that the benefits are actually maximised and are, are shared equitably. So again, the
0: policy piece is going to be crucial moving forwards from a continental perspective as well as from uh, each country's uh, relative representation and their expectations. Yeah, no, definitely. Turning towards aspect of, of women participating in the economy. Obviously, women's participation in the labor force has massive or significant macroeconomic contributions. But globally, and we've mentioned it already in the conversation, that women are still often underrepresented in certain sectors. They're underpaid in comparison to their male counterparts. On average earning, I think, from South African point of view, approximately 23 percent less than men. In your opinion, what types of interventions do you think could be put in place to help remedy those types of situations?
1: Improving uh, a woman's uh, participation, uh, representation um, and benefits uh, from the labor force is is really central. And it's got implications not only for the labor force and the economy, but even well outside of that uh, for uh, gender-based violence, uh, for women's freedom to make their own decisions um, and, and so on, what kind of policy interventions um, would be needed? I think it's it's really a range of things. Th- there's definitely no uh, silver bullet. I think there's there's legal aspects to it, there's uh, economic aspects, uh, there's skills development aspects, and broadly, I, I suppose one strand of that is kind of uh, the removing of of obstacles and of barriers and discrimination removing and uh, prohibiting and uh, enforcing prohibitions on discrimination in uh, lending, for example, and access to capital, uh, removing uh, discrimination in, in in the workplace. Obviously, in South Africa, we have a, a fantastic suite of uh, labour laws um, that do prohibit these kinds of things. They're not always uh, in, enforced in practice, um, as we know. So th- there's no way that we can move towards a more gender equitable uh, situation without positive steps towards empowering women. And when we look at uh, countries around the world, we see a great degree of uh, heterogeneity in in women's uh, status and outcomes in the labour force and and the economy uh, more broadly. Some where women and men are close to um, equitably represented in terms of participation, wages and so on. Others where the differences are really vast these things are the outcome of choices which countries and firms and individuals uh, make over a long period of time you don't want to reduce everything to policy but
0: policy is there to to guide and sometimes i wonder if perhaps people aren't really aware of what those policies are so that they can have them enforced or understand that from a corporate point of view a, a company could be putting those policies into place but then from a on a more personal level that if you're aware of what your your rights and entitlements and opportunities are you can say this is a piece of policy i can do this and I'd like you, Mr. Company or Mrs. Company, to please be accountable for that and, and don't deny me my, my opportunity.
1: Yeah, I think that's correct because a lot of that is there on paper. It, it, it is there on our books and is also used in practice. I don't want to just say that you know, it's just there in paper, but it's not applicable because we do in South Africa have institutions uh, like the CCMA and labour courts and so on where people can go to to actualise uh, those rights. Obviously, it's easier to for some people than others to have knowledge of those rights and to be able to enforce them, I think the role of the of trade unions is is uh, particularly important in terms of uh, taking up cases and so on. But There's also a limit to what can be done on an individual basis. So, yes, the individual aspect is important. There are these uh, rights and entitlements and so on, which have to be enforced. And some of that can only happen on an individual basis where there's a case of discrimination and so on. Have that brought to the fore. But uh, we wouldn't want to just have to rely on individuals uh, kind of uh, stepping up because we're talking here about a broader societal issue. Looking towards the future of women. What do you think we need to do
0: collectively beyond just the economic aspect and and social aspect to build more of an egalitarian society where there are no limits imposed on women?
1: That's a huge question and um, definitely with no easy answer, but it's something which is absolutely fundamental to to humanity. And again, coming back to the diverse experiences internationally, the reality is that in, in some societies, the position of women um, is far better than others, um, and there's far more gender equality. And here I'm talking in all uh, spheres of life than in others. And of course, it's it's not a, just a kind of uh, linear thing because um, sexism and gender inequality expresses itself in, in different forms in different societies. Even in those countries where I would say the position of of women is better, it's not that it's always been like that, or it's not that there's always that there's never been. Uh, patriarchal cultures or whatever. So those cultures and values change over time. It's not something which is easy to change uh, through policy, unfortunately. And I think that those kind of values, patriarchal and sexist values, are at the heart of of many problems. When we look at, for example, gender based violence and, and so on, it's not something which you can kind of legislate away. But there are things which can change, perhaps not overnight, but there are things which can and and, and must change. And again, it comes back to what I would see as the interconnections between these different spheres, um, the legal, uh, the economic, the educational, the cultural and so on. These are so closely uh, connected and to get broader systematic change uh, of the type you're talking about, It's not something which can just be done legally or economically or whatever, because even, for example, those those values and gender based violence, they're also going to be affected by women's place in the in the economy uh, and earning potential and so on. Women's earning potential is in turn going to be affected by the legal, by cultural and so on. So. Now, to say we need an integrated approach, um, it kind of it's not to say that no, there's there's uh, nothing that we can do, but of course we have to do everything. But I really do think that it needs to be a multi pronged approach. And translating this very practically to, for example, the work of government, there's no government department that doesn't have something to do with and something to contribute to the place of women and to gender equality, whether it be uh, tourism or defence or uh, whatever agenda approach needs to be mainstreamed within each and every government department and every level of government from local to national?
0: The issue that I have whenever I ask this question is the fact of time. And it's only through time of putting in appropriate legislation of of changing traditional patriarchal attitudes that things have been able to evolve. Plus, I think if we look at the world we're in today, I don't think there's ever been a period because of our healthcare systems that we've got so many different generations at play. So one generation would have been influenced by another set of factors compared to another generation. So we have got all of these generations and and age cohorts that have been exposed to different things And you're asking people to rewire their thinking to adjust to the conforms of today's society. And that is always going to be a challenge. So I often wish that there there was a a simpler way of doing things and not having to go through this this aspect
1: of of time. Yeah, look, on the one hand, I think some of some things that matter will take time to change. And and, uh, that's a reality. But that shouldn't be disempowering. Recognition or something to get uh, us as society off the hook, as if there's nothing that can be done in the short term. For example, fiscal policy is something that matters for women. What is government's money spent on? And every year there's there's a new budget. It's not something you have to wait 20 years to change. And some types of expenditure affect women positively and negatively uh, more than others. That's something that. as I say, it, it can be changed on a yearly basis. If we're thinking about uh, gender-based violence, yes, it might take a while to to really change people's uh, values at a fundamental level. But at the same time, there's things which can be done this year in terms of police and, and, and court practices, in terms of education, in terms of just enforcing the laws that we already um, have on the books, ensuring safe spaces for women and so on. So it's a, it's a multi-point approach, both in terms of uh, across different domains, uh, and not just to leave everything to policy, but to think about uh, yeah in the home, in the, in the family, and so on. And some things will take time, but things can also be done now. And
0: perhaps in thinking along those, those points of view and from an economics perspective, if we think about how much money we invest into trying to find solutions for gender-based violence or the money that goes into setting up homes or the money that goes into uh, dealing with people in hospital or the time that they've spent out of work because they're addressing a situation, that has all got a cost associated to it. So we could think of reversing that cost into creating other opportunities that could have a a more positive outcome.
1: Yeah, and it's about uh, building the kind of society uh, that we want and what steps are needed now, investing and not only financial investment but investment in in all senses um, that can build that in future.
0: You are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, the African perspective on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band, also available on DSTV channel 802. Today, we're talking to Professor Fiona Tregana, who holds the DST NRF South African Research Chair in Industrial Development and is a professor of economics at the University of Johannesburg. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at WomanityTalk. Prof. Tregena, education is a vital tool to empower individuals and societies. As I mentioned in in the introduction, you started with your studies in South Africa, then went to the USA, then went to the UK. Can you share with us what role education has played in your life and career developments?
1: Well, education has been absolutely fundamental uh, to my life. Uh, It's something I've enjoyed not necessarily every moment of it, certainly not every test and exam over the years, but the learning process and the development process is something that I've really enjoyed, which I guess is uh, why I kept uh, doing more degrees. And certainly I wouldn't have the position that I, I have today and be able to do the kind of research which I, I'm doing and so on um, without having studied up to, up to the PhD level. So education has been really life-shaping for me. And I, I've also had I've been fortunate to have the opportunity, as you said, to, to study abroad in the in the US and the UK. And more broadly, that's been a, a kind of life changing experience for me. Living in different uh, societies where you see some things which uh, you like and some things which you don't like, some things which uh, you can fit in with uh, well and uh, and some uh, less so. Seeing different ways of, of doing things, different ways of people living, different ways in which uh, societies are organized and so on. I know lifelong learning might be a bit of a cliche, but it's really true. I read every day and I'm continually daunted by, by how much I still don't know. <laughs> Both
0: you and I have been privileged in terms of the education that we've received, and it's certainly em- empowered our lives. What are your views on education as a practical tool in the hands of, of women to help change not only their lives, but also the lives of their children for the better?
1: Yes, it, it, it's crucial. There's not much more fundamental than uh, than education in terms of the life prospects of, of children. Obviously, it's education together with uh, nutrition and a, a safe and loving home and so on. But w- without education and access to education, quality education, meaningful and relevant education, people's life prospects are so dimmed. I, I feel like a... A lump in my throat and it tear my eye, <laughs> and I'm not afraid to say that when I think about children and their potential, which is wasted, and their life prospects, which are so harmed in the first few years of, of their lives, just through lack of access um, to education. And it, yeah, someone might be sitting in a classroom, but I'm talking about access to real quality education that can open up um, the sort of life choices that any human being uh, should have. And turning more towards a a
0: personal perspective, one of the questions that I ask all our guests on the show who've made significant achievements in their respective careers is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success, whether it is about faith, focus, values, particular people in their life.
1: Can you share with us, in your opinion, what have been some of your key drivers? I think values matter. For me, as I said earlier, uh, my, my values is something which uh, brought me into to economics in the first place. The feeling that a better world is possible. This is not how we want uh, things to look um, and that uh, the world can be changed. It has definitely been a key uh, motivation for me um, and it goes to the, the relevance and, and uh, you know, the impact of, of one's work. Um, perhaps in a, you know, a less tangible way. Some of the drivers for me have been sort of setting one's sights um, high and continually changing that and adjusting that and, and raising uh, what you, what you want to set out to, to achieve. I think goals are really important. Goals will certainly change over time, but it's important to know what, you, what, what you're aiming at um, and, and to aim high, um, even if people tell you that uh, it's unrealistic, or that it will take you too long, or that someone else will do it, or has done it, or, or whatever. Um, so I think setting your sights um, high and, and knowing kind of what you need to do uh, to get there. Learning from others is, is really important. Uh, learning from your own mistakes. Nobody's going to be good at everything.
0: And growing up, can you share with us a few of the pivotal moments in your life that have led you to, to become the person you are today?
1: Through my childhood, um, uh, my mother was always a, a key inspiration uh, to me. As a school teacher herself, she put a lot of um, emphasis on education. This was always uh, seen as kind of you know, one of the most important uh, parts of our, of our life. And as a, as a single parent, um, seeing how how she managed everything um, and uh, also led uh, her own balanced life, whilst I would say having uh, myself and my brothers kind of the, her, her central focus. I think has you know, has been an inspiration to me in terms of sort of pivotal parts of, of of growing up, I suppose one that I would identify would be, you know, becoming politicized in the South African context, which for me was quite early even at, at school and having that feeling of, of injustice and that part of South Africa at that time and uh, the world more broadly, it affected the, the path that my life took in terms of uh, studies and um, activism and uh, the people that I've uh, I've met and uh, values and so on, I think has uh, in a way been a transformative uh, life experience for me.
0: You mentioned your mom as being a strong person, a woman in your life. Can you tell us about some of the other strong women who have influenced or impacted on you?
1: Yeah, I would say there have been strong women who've uh, been role models and inspirations to me in various spheres of life, one would be in, in politics where I had the the, you know, the privilege of being exposed to people who have played a, a long role in uh, the liberation of South Africa, people who 've been in exile, people who 've been in prison uh, who 've been tortured, who have fought in, in uh, different ways, and a number of those uh, women who are too many to to mention have been really um, inspirational uh, to me both in terms of what they've done, I suppose the cost to them personally, not to romanticize that you see in some cases the, the damage to people and, and how they've dealt with that. Um, and then in, in academia as well, um, both in South Africa and internationally, um, people who've made really fundamental contributions um, to knowledge and to upcoming uh, students and um, uh, researchers and so on. Um, I actually feel that, I would have benefited from having um, a mentor um, or mentors um, myself. So I, I act as a mentor to uh, a number of uh, emerging women uh, researchers. Um, yeah, and uh, hopefully through my own mentorship, some of which is kind of formal, some more informal, I'm able to at least uh, pass on some of those and uh, yeah, also learn and grow myself in the process. Mentoring
0: and mentorship is such an important part, I think, of, of being able to aid and assist people so that they don't have to, let's say, walk the same journey that you walked and and suffer the same types of, of pain. It just elevates them to another level so that they can make their own mistakes, but not um, repeat your mistakes, for instance.
1: Yeah, sure. Everyone has their own uh, journey to walk and their own uh, life path and strengths and weaknesses and so on. But um, I think we, we all need to stand on each other's uh, shoulders and uh, learn what we can. And lastly, as we close out the
0: conversation today, please, can you share a few words of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to impart to young ladies and women that are listening to us on the continent?
1: Yeah, it, it's a big world out there and we need to look beyond our own immediate so, whether it be our immediate city, town, village, wherever we're staying, even if we're staying in a capital city, and it seems like a big place, but there's a big world uh, beyond that. And not only uh, geographically, but in terms of thought, ideas, people. So, it's about broadening our perspectives, challenging accepted uh, wisdoms uh, within ourselves, within society um, as a whole. Not accepting being told things that you can't do, that you can't do as a woman. And sometimes these things are not told to you in those ways, but it will come through uh, indirectly in 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 different ways. So not accepting that, not, not internalizing it and challenging it when it comes up. And I think standing up for ourselves, for our needs, uh, for our beliefs. I think we've all been in a situation where Maybe you're in a difficult situation or a conflict or even if it's not a conflict, but a a situation where you're kind of negotiating your pathway. And you often think afterwards, I wish I'd said this or I wish I'd asked for this. Maybe I would have got it or I wish I'd challenged this. So I think it's about um, asserting yourself and not being afraid to, to, to ask for things, demand things, change things as you go. I guess also... You know, time passes really quickly. <laughs> it's a, maybe a cliche. So it's about knowing where you're going and where you want to be. I know that some people have sort of very detailed uh, five year plans or 10 year plans. I've, I've never been really organized enough um, or maybe kind of deliberate enough to do those sort of things. But I suppose broadly to kind of have an idea of this is where you want to go and this is what you need to be doing now um, to, to get there. And life-work balance is also really important. Something which for you know, for me, um, after becoming um, a mom, because I now have two young kids, you look at it in a different way. It's a, it's an ongoing challenge for me. It's it's a, it's a daily challenge. It's a daily struggle to have that kind of uh, balance. I don't think there is such a thing, maybe as that as that balance. And as suppose to to think about you know what what matters now for the future, um, in terms of your children, career, relationships, uh, happiness, and so on. Um, and how to, to balance those things um, as best you can. And I guess lastly, I would just say to be kind to yourself and others. And especially during this time of the of the pandemic, it's really important to to look after yourselves. Sometimes it's easier to give this kind of uh, advice than to to live it in your own life. But I suppose I'm also reminding myself of it as I, as I say it. So to be kind and to take care of ourselves, our families, friends, colleagues, And more broadly, just to have that kind of a a positive outlook, um, I don't think I can say anything more. Let me leave it there.
0: For me, it was it was a message of integration, of being self-aware, of understanding all of the elements in your life, that life is a journey. It's not a sprint, that we do have to take cognizance of our goals and ambitions and, and live out and, and live hard to attain those. And I particularly liked what you said about the possibility of driving change. Not accepting no for an answer if that's where your pathway and and destination is. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure having you on the air. Thanks,
1: Amala. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Fiona Tregena, who holds the DST, NRF, South African Research Chair in Industrial Development and is a professor of economics at the University of Johannesburg.